Schaefer was not aware of the CT scan of Mr. Hicks before beginning his procedure can, by itself, establish a breach of the standard of care. That would be a, a perfectly accurate statement based on the plaintiff's evidence. B, perfectly true under the law. C, would be blatantly inappropriate. No judge in their right mind would give that instruction because it comments upon the evidence. It focuses the jury's attention on one aspect of the evidence. When all of the other instructions... Well, Doesn't does instruction 14a do the same thing? And all that instruction says is you must determine the standard of care that was required of Dr. Schaefer by considering only the expert testimony on that subject. Welcome to the Court of Appeals of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law, a personal injury and long-term disability law firm with headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia. Listening to oral arguments is one of the best ways to both learn and stay abreast of the substantive and procedural aspects of practicing law in Virginia. By putting these public domain recordings into the form of a podcast, Ben Glass Law has made it easy for the public to access these recordings. All commentary that is not part of the actual court proceedings is that of the show sponsor. Senior against the AC against ACV Incorporated, Mr. McNew and Mr. Humbush. Senior counsel. Mr. McNew, you have 15 minutes. Would you care to reserve any of that time for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. I'm going to shoot for five minutes. Shoot for five minutes. Okay, we'll shoot for five minutes. You may proceed when you're ready. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the court. I'm Kyle McNew. I'm here on behalf of the Hicks Estate. Instruction 9 encapsulated defense expert opinion almost verbatim into a jury instruction, thereby improperly commenting upon the evidence, contradicting the plaintiff's evidence, singling out one aspect of the case to the exclusion of others. Instruction 9 was argumentative, and Instruction 9 was unbalanced and incomplete. It was therefore erroneous. I'm going to begin with the, fir- I'm going to be- begin with the first part. The defense expert testified, was asked at record 1729, does the fact that Dr. Schaefer was ultimately unable to intubate Mr. Hicks mean that he breached the standard of care? And of course, the defense expert said, no, absolutely not. That sounds a lot like Instruction 9, which is the fact that Dr. Schaefer was unable to state Mr. Hicks does not by itself establish a breach of the standard of care. They took defense expert opinion and put it into a jury instruction. And that's, that's the problem with doing it this way. I want you to imagine that we had offered a no, jury instruction. Of course, the model instruction, which isn't required to be used, but that simply says that the fact that a doctor's efforts on behalf of his patient weren't successful does not by itself establish negligence. That's a correct statement of the law, is it not? It is, I'm not disputing what Chapel Brooks held which is that it's not argumentative, that, it's, that, that it is a correct statement of law. I think it's an incomplete statement of the law, but in, I'm not here to art quibble with the old model. This instruction was that not... That was the model instruction at the time of this trial, was it not? I think that's a kind of existential question. We were, we were in model flux at the point. Um, Fair enough. Fair the, enough. The, the new model had been approved by the model jury instruction committee as of October 22. The book had not yet been published by Lexis until a, a month later, but it, it, the model, the new model had been circulated. Of course, the, the model instructions are not, they're not necessarily right. in force and, of law. There's no requirement that they be used. But let's, for the purposes of my question, let's assume just for the purposes of my question, that's what I just recited is not an incorrect statement of the law. Admittedly, perhaps in isolation, it could be problematic without further instructions to flesh it out or whatever. But in the abstract, assuming that's a correct statement of law, if all all that was done here was substitute specific, in this case, names or assertions 
to with the the words that, for example, in this case, for example, Dr. Schaefer in lieu of doctor. No problem. Or substitution of the patient for Mr. Hicks. Or the, let's see, the other would be the unsuccessful, fail to establish intubation successfully. So I think that's the problem, if, is the if unable... Those, if those are, if they're simply an expression of details, factual details that relate directly to the law, it is otherwise correct. I'm struggling to understand where the error is. So no problem with substituting doctor for Dr. Schaefer, plaintiff for Mrs. Wollum, patient for Mr. Hicks. All of the instructions in this case did that by agreement. This was the only, this was the only instruction where the model was changed substantively where we, we took out the, the fact that a doctor's efforts on behalf of his patient were unsuccessful and changed it with unable to successfully intubate Mr. Hicks. And that's our main, that's part one of our main problem here with this case is that took us from the generality, from the entirety of his efforts and focused on just one aspect of it, one aspect of this case, which is once he has pushed the drugs to knock him out and is starting to try to intubate him, he wasn't able to do it. This is one of the places where, the, where I think our experts were in agreement. He had no chance of being able to do it once he had crossed that Rubicon. But our experts focused on what happened before that. Our case was about the fact that he didn't know the information he needed to know to make the right call. He didn't know about the CT scan. He didn't know about the mass in the neck. He had no idea this was going to be a difficult airway until he's in the rapids already. So this instruction takes what was a case that was here and brings it to here, which is exactly where the defense wanted to be. That's where they wanted this case to live. We wanted it to live in another place. That's what the jury is there for. That's what our counsel is there for, is to argue what this is about. The jury instructions are supposed to be general. Just the by itself maybe widen the reasonableness because it's not saying it's saying that alone isn't enough but by itself implies that in conjunction with other things it could be yeah but so does the model right the model says takes the entirety of the efforts the entire waterfront and says that by itself isn't sufficient this this instruction narrowed it down and said that by itself and i believe that relying on by itself to do all the work here is unreasonable especially in if light. I follow up on Judge Freeman's point, which is the point I was going to ask you about anyway, as well, we don't read these instructions in isolation. We look at, at the, the totality, and it seems to me you're focusing on instruction number nine, but instructions four, 14, and 14a also address the standard of care that is required here in, with some specificity. So would you to explain to us why taking instruction nine together with the rest of these instructions, it's it's... You focused on a single, basically what amounts to a single phrase or a single word even in one instruction, but looking at all the other instructions, it seems to me the jury could arguably at least not be confused by that at all. So I think that's, I think what you just said is exactly the point, which is, which is the rest of the instructions were stated in general fashion. This instruction focuses on just one thing. And it draws the jury's attention to just one subset, sub-aspect of this case. All of the other instructions are stated in generalities, in the plaintiff's burden to prove negligence, that, that standard of care must be determined by the expert's testimony. They, they don't, doesn't drill well, down well, to any one specific... Instruction 4, for example, which you have to read in conjunction with, says you shall, find, you shall find your verdict for plaintiff and against ACV Incorporated if 
the plaintiff has proved by the greater weight of the evidence that one, Dr. Schaefer failed to exercise the degree of skill and diligence required by a reasonably prudent anesthesiologist practicing in the Commonwealth of Virginia in 2016, and that two, the failure to exercise the required degree of skill and diligence by Dr. Schaefer was a proximate cause of Mr. Hicks' death. That's the operative part of the rest of it. It's just the, what you should do after you find, make those findings. Given that, why, why does that straighten out any possible confusion that might arise from number nine? I'll accept your premise that this that instruction nine is possibly confusing, but the, what you just said, that instruction is broad enough to cover the entire case. It covers the entirety of the evidence. Instruction nine then brings us to one sub-aspect of it and comments upon one specific aspect of the evidence. I imagine if we had submitted a, an instruction that says, the fact that Dr. Schaefer was not aware of the CT scan of Mr. Hicks before beginning his procedure can, by itself, establish a breach of the standard of care. That would be a, a perfectly accurate statement based on the plaintiff's evidence. B, perfectly true under the law. C, would be blatantly inappropriate. No judge in their right mind would give that instruction because it comments upon the evidence. It focuses the jury's attention on one aspect of the evidence. When all of the other instructions... Well, Doesn't does instruction 14a do the same thing? And all that instruction says is you must determine the standard of care that was required of Dr. Schaefer by considering only the expert testimony on that subject. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law, a national leader in long-term disability insurance claims. We help doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and other C-suite executives get paid for their long-term disability benefits. Visit us at benglasslaw.com or give us a call at 703-591-9829. In all of the expert testimony, the entirety of it, this instruction brought us back to one aspect of the testimony. It is the procedure itself, is the unsuccessful intubation attempt, whereas the rest of this case was about what happened before in terms of not getting a proper history and physical, not, know, not even knowing that there was a CT scan, not having any idea before he put, knocked this guy out and started opening his jaw that this was going to be a difficult airway. He admitted that he did not appreciate that this was a difficult airway until he got involved, until, he got, until this guy was already knocked out. And how that set up what happened next, which is they weren't in an OR. He wasn't aware of any of the coagulation issues. So they had to have this emergency tracheotomy done by, started by residents in an ICU bed rather than an appropriate setting. This instruction improperly brought us to one piece of this when the models exist for, for predictability. They exist for generality. They are considered in a studious way rather than in the five minutes that typically happens in a charging conference before you give jury instructions. Giving this instruction basically says you can disregard the models with impunity, and I agree they are not binding. They are not binding, but they exist for a reason, the and they model, exist for consistency. The model says that the new model seems to have brackets, was not cured, was injured, had a bad result, rather than saying the specific. But tendered instruction G says the mere fact that Mr. Hicks died is that not on similar footing with had an unsuccessful intubation? That's focusing on also a terrible outcome. That's why I think it's different, which is the result here was death. 
that's what happened. Had a bad result, died. Of course, in our in the in our in the bench brief that we submitted to the trial court before the jury before the charging instruction, we specifically said if you, we don't think you should give this instruction at all because it's problematic. But if you give it, you should give the new model, and it's just the general new model. We then later on tendered G, but we'd have been fine with either one of those. We made we get we offered both of those as an option to the trial court, and it, to me, it's just astounding that the trial court would in, in the face of two possible models would instead swing the other way in a bespoke way that parrots the defense case. And I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Hey, Mr. Wimbish. May it please the court, Randy Wimbish on behalf of the appellee ACV Inc. On the morning of October 2nd, 2016, Dr. Schaefer was called upon to attempt to intubate Douglas Hicks. The evidence at trial was undisputed that his sole involvement in Mr. Hicks' care during the roughly one week that he was hospitalized at Roanoke Memorial was that effort to intubate him. It was equally undisputed at trial that effort to intubate Mr. Hicks was unsuccessful. Instruction 9 correctly told the jury that fact does not by itself establish a breach of the standard of care or entitle the plaintiff to recover. The question presented for this court on this particular appeal is, was that an accurate statement of the law? Was it supported by the evidence? And was it in some way misleading or improperly argumentative? And is it accurate to say that it singles out exactly what the defense expert said? It is not, Your Honor. He certainly, that testimony that Mr. McNeese cited to the court is what was necessary to make this instruction supported by the evidence. If there had been no evidence to that effect, then it would not have been an appropriate instruction to give. And so from that standpoint, again, what the expert testified, though, to was something more than what this instruction says, which was it wasn't a breach of the standard of care, which ultimately was the critical issue, as Judge Humphreys cited from instruction number four, that they had to find, the jury had to find that. The issue was laid out in instruction number one. How that impacted the findings was in number four to say that you have to prove, the plaintiff has to prove, that Dr. Schaefer violated the standard of care for a reasonably prudent anesthesiologist in Virginia in 2016, and that such breach was a proximate cause of Mr. Hicks's death. And in this sense, instruction number nine made it clear to the jury the well-settled principle that if all we have is the fact that someone died, that there was an automobile accident, that an intubation didn't work, that fact standing alone is insufficient to entitle the plaintiff to recover, and in all of the other instructions are outlined what of evidence and how the jury should interpret that evidence to be able to make out a case that would entitle the plaintiff to a verdict. And so from our perspective, because it was an accurate statement of the law, because it was supported by the evidence, and because it was not misleading or argumentative, the, this court should affirm the judgment. As we've heard, instruction number nine was directly modeled on the then existing version of model instruction 35.0. I believe I heard Mr. McNew concede was an accurate statement of the law. Uh, I think that is clear by the Chapel Brooks decision, and there certainly has been no case cited to this court in any of the pleadings to suggest to the contrary. The criticism seems to be of the modifications, and again, it's been conceded that changing patient to Mr. Hicks 
doctor to doctor Schaefer is not problematic, but it appears that the criticism is centered on the other modification in which efforts on behalf of his patient, which was in the model, was changed to unable to int the patient or unable to successfully intubate the patient. And I am just at a loss to understand any substantive difference. Again, that brings it specific to the facts of this case in the same spirit as calling the patient Mr. Hicks and the doctor, Dr. Schaefer. Be closer to comment on the evidence? No, Your Honor, and I should point out the assertion was made on brief and the also I think here this afternoon that instruction number nine was the only one which deviated from the models other than changing the names. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law, a statewide leader in the personal injury field. We help the injured and disabled make great decisions about their legal situations. Visit our website at benglasslaw.com or call us at 703-591-9829 for more information and a free evaluation of your case. But in fact, we have to look no farther than Instruction 4, which Judge Humphrey cited or quoted, and Instruction 1, both of which tailor... If you look at the models for those, they say, was the defendant negligent? And was the negligence a proximate cause? In both instruction one and instruction four, negligent was tailored to the specific testimony, the specific evidence that's adduced in any medical malpractice case such as this one, namely whether the physician defendant or the physician whose care is at issue complied with the applicable standard of care of a reasonably prudent fill-in-the-blank, in this case anesthesiologist, in his course of treatment of the patient at issue, in this case Mr. Hicks. Instruction number six, which has to do with the greater weight of the evidence, was modified from the model to take into the account the fact that in a medical malpractice case where there's another instruction that says the standard of care can only be determined by expert testimony, that a lay witness can't be the greater weight of the evidence on that because they're not an expert. And so there was another modification specific to this case that was substantive and not just a matter of changing the names. In our car accident cases, for example, isn't there a long-standing practice of modifying those model instructions to to make them more applicable to the facts that have been put before the jury. I believe that's true, Your Honor, and not just in automobile accidents, in slip and falls, in obviously medical malpractice context, divergent from an effort to intubate a patient. And again, I think that is, I've always been taught good trial practice to these instructions are hard enough for lay people. We all study them in law school for three years. We work with them every day for many years thereafter and expecting lay people to digest those and apply them to what they've heard over the preceding one, two, or multiple days of trial. I think good trial practice is to tailor them and that's why we say Dr. Schaefer instead of a doctor, Mr. Hicks instead of the patient. And in that same vein, it only makes logical sense to tailor it to the specific allegation in this case related to the failure of intubation. The hypothetical instruction that Mr. McNew offered to the court about the fact that Dr. Schaefer allegedly didn't know something wouldn't be sufficient. Again, that doesn't have anything to do with the expert testimony and the fact that the key issue, the key phrasing in instruction number nine, just as it is in the model, is by itself, 
the arguments that the plaintiff has made, certainly on brief, and I think here today, act as if that key phrase isn't in the, or wasn't in the instruction. If you look at the, they argue on brief, instruction nine told the jury that the unsuccessful intubation was not evidence of negligence. That's not what it says. It says it's not by itself evidence of negligence. If it had said what they argued that it said, then I would agree. That wouldn't be in a proper instruction, but that key phrase makes all the difference. And in that sense is why it is an appropriate statement of law. And again, as the Chapel Brooks case also said, not argumentative, not misleading. The totality of the instructions allowed the plaintiff to argue and counsel did quite eloquently in closing argument that they presented far more evidence than simply the mere fact that the intubation effort was unsuccessful, that they presented expert testimony in support of their theory based on the standard of care, its breach and causation, and that should have entitled them in the light most favorable to the plaintiff to a verdict. The jury considered that. We have to presume they considered all of the instructions in their totality as they were told to do, and they rejected the plaintiff's argument and in returned a verdict in favor of the defendant. And so from that standpoint, the system, in our view, worked exactly as it was supposed to. Again, the instruction was not argumentative. It was not misleading. And quite frankly, whether the so-called new model is better or worse than the old model or its modification into Instruction 9 is simply not the issue before this court. The issue is, was the instruction that was given an accurate statement supported by the evidence and not misleading and argumentative, and because it was accurate, supported by the evidence, and not misleading or argumentative, we would ask that the judgment of the circuit court be affirmed. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rubish. Rebuttal. Mr. McNeil, let me ask you a, a really, what I hope is a really simple question. Would, standing alone, the failure to intubate this patient be sufficient to establish negligence? Under our evidence? Just in the, yeah, in the abstract. Would the, standing alone, would the failure to a patient constitute negligence on the part of a doctor? Are we talking about this case or just, because I, the answer in this case is yes, under our evidence, was that the standard of care required using uh, awake intubation, and awake intubation is like 99% successful under, under our evidence. That's I'm asking if this, would the mere failure to intubate a patient constitute negligence as a matter of law. I'll put it that way. Under the facts of this case, our evidence- In the abstract. It, I, and I really, I, I teach don't avoid the hypo, and I'm really not trying to do that, but I can't answer that in the abstract because it depends on the presentation of- Well, the, the law, I think you've already conceded, the law is that you can't get to negligence just from the failure of a medical procedure standing alone. The, I, I agree. The and fact of a bad law, result. That is the law. You the agree fact bad result. With respect to any medical procedure, whether it's intubation or some other medical procedure, isn't the law that standing alone, that's not simply not the failure to, to, for it to be successful alone is not enough to demonstrate negligence? The fact of an unsuccessful treatment, yes, is not is standing alone, okay. not evidence. But it, but that's so far in the abstract that I, I, in this case, our evidence was no that it what that was in fact sufficient to establish a breach of the standard of care. Let me. Can I ask you this? 
We've, it's been interesting today. We've had some cases cited to us from 1800s, and now we're at one in 1918, the Hunter case. Love it. Okay, so tell me how that instruction is different than the one that was given today. And is Hunter still good law? I hope you wrap your arms around Hunter. Okay. So for two reasons. Just blow the dust off of it, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> first find it in the book, then wrap your arms around it. One, the, the instruction in Hunter is that the result was insufficient to establish the unskillfulness or negligence of a physician. It wasn't, it didn't focus on specific aspects of the effort, if I recall correctly. I thought it's, the court instructs the jury that the fact that after the plaintiff was treated with the x-ray by the defendant, ulcers appeared on his legs, does not of itself alone entitle the plaintiff to recover. Yeah, and so in my mind, I'm focused. And then there was more of that instruction, certainly. So the, that focuses on the fact of what happened. But the reason I really love Hunter is because uh, Hunter's one of those old opinions where the first part of it, at least in Lexis, is the syllabus, which I'm used to not reading. But in the old, back then, that's, they announced the statement of the case and then they're holding. The syllabus, if you look at instruction two in the syllabus, it has the exact language that we say should have been included here. If you look at instruction two, it has that you may consider what the result along with the other evidence. I don't think you can read the part that you just read in isolation, to your point, Your Honor. Hunter was, was great because it had that balance. We don't have that here. If I may respond quickly to a couple of points. First, to your question, Your Honor, in a car wreck case, we say a fact of the accident is not evidence. Uh, but, and yeah, sometimes we can tailor that, but if it's a case where there's three allegations, you weren't paying full time and attention, you were speeding, you were doing X, and we had an instruction that focused on just one of those things, that would be problematic. So sometimes it's okay to tailor, here it wasn't. The other part that I don't wanna lose focus on is what they slapped on to the end of instruction nine, which is, or entitled to plant the plaintiff to recover. That's the second half of the fact of the accident instruction from the motor vehicle models. They slapped that on, they said instruction nine had- You have to establish, though, the negligence in order to recover. Sure. but. Instruction, the, the model says, does not by itself establish negligence. They say, does not by, they uh, change instruction nine to say, does not by itself establish a breach of standard of care. No problem with that change. Then they added, or entitle the plaintiff to recover in this case. So they took two things that I think they say just mean the same thing. Those are two, two statements that mean the same thing, two clauses, and put them together. It's in this like Frankenstein's monster of an instruction that I believe tells the jury, if I'm sitting on a jury, these instructions are confusing, what am I supposed to do with that? I, I'm told this fact does not by itself mean this one thing or this other thing when they say that, the, that they mean the same thing. Counsel, so you're all over your time th now. Thank you, Your Honor. All right, we will come down to Greek Council and take up the next case. Hey, this is Ben Glass just butting in here. If you like these recordings, you're going to also want to subscribe to the Supreme Court of Virginia Oral Argument Podcast. And I've got one more for you. If you're an attorney, and particularly if you're a law firm owner, go over and listen to the Renegade Lawyer Podcast, where we talk about having a great life and building that life through the vehicle of a law firm. Check us out and have a great day. The proceeding has been a production of Ben Glass Law, a Fairfax, Virginia-based personal injury and long-term disability law firm. For a free evaluation of your claim, visit us at benglasslaw.com or call us at 703-591-9829.